Luke chapter 7. We want to praise the Lord for the gift of forgiveness. I believe that forgiveness is the greatest miracle in the Bible. I believe that it's the greatest miracle in the Bible because it is the miracle that we need the most, because it is the miracle that costs the most, because it is the miracle that does the most good, and because it is the miracle that's really the hardest to believe and to accept. Now then, if you've turned to Luke chapter 7, if you'll look at the beginning of this, when he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a certain centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. And when he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. And when they had come to Jesus, they earnestly entreated him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them. And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not fit for you to come under my roof. For this reason I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For indeed I am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes. To another come, and he comes, and to my slave do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him. And he turned and said to the multitude that was following, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Now when the Holy Spirit led their dear and glorious physician, Dr. Luke, to put together this remarkable account of the life of our Lord, Luke, who was a physician himself, has a special interest in people who are being healed. Doubtless as a physician, Luke had many times seen people writhing in pain, and Luke wanted more than anything else to see them well. And it's a very great miracle to see someone who is sick and near to death healed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. I wish that I had the gift of healing so that I could walk out of Anderson Auditorium this morning and head straight for the Veterans Administration Hospital at Oteen and walk up and down its corridors and into every room where I saw people that were worried and full of pain and simply touch them and say, I'm going to heal you. In the name of Jesus, you're well. I wish that I had that power because if I did, I would exercise it and I would spend this whole day and all into the night healing every person that I could get hold of because it's not a happy experience to go through ill health. The last few years the Lord has led me through some rather deep waters with a stroke in 1974 and then with subsequent troubles that I've had. And you know, once you go through some pain and through some suffering, it gives you a greater insight into what other people go through and it makes you want to see them well. Now, I do not limit the power of God. He can heal, and he does heal. And it was a great miracle that this man should have been healed. Once when a woman touched the hem of Jesus' garment, she who had had a loathsome disease was instantly cured. And the scriptures tell us that he perceived that virtue had gone out of him. 
And it cost something of Jesus when people were healed. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, and by his stripes we are healed. That healing always costs and costs and costs. But there's a greater miracle than this because this centurion servant, this Gentile, if you please, who was not even going to come under the roof of Jesus and whom Dr. Luke, who is also a Gentile, makes special note of in the healing. This Gentile is healed, but one day he'll get sick again and he'll die. But Jesus does still a greater miracle in this chapter if you look at verse 11 of chapter 7. And it came about soon afterwards that he went to a city called Nain, and his disciples were going along with him accompanied by a large multitude. Now as he approached the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he felt compassion. This is one of the biggest words in all of the Bible. He felt compassion. His whole viseria, his, all of his insides were moved. He wept one time when he went into the cemetery where Lazarus was entombed. He wept because he knew that death was the great enemy. He wept because he knew the pain and the sorrow that death brought to people's homes. Now I'm sure that there are some of you who are still smarting tears this day when you think of a voice that you will not hear again and when you think of a footstep that you will not recognize again and you wish that just for a moment you had some person back again so that you could tell them how much you love them and how much you miss them and the heartbreak and the agony and the sorrow that death has brought into this world were not looked upon uh, with indifference by our blessed Lord but he was moved with compassion when he saw this poor widow bewailing the death of her only child, this son. And he stopped that funeral procession. And look what happens. As it, and when, he, when the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. What a marvelous miracle this is. I get a little bit amused in reading some of the liberal commentaries on the Gospel of Luke. They really have a hard time explaining how dead people come back to life again. Uh, they, one idiotic commentator that I was reading at this point said that the man was really in a swoon. And so Jesus awakened him from this swoon. I'm sure that if that had been true, he would have also lectured people on the evils of premature burials. Um, I am like the old Negro commentator that said the Bible sure sheds a lot of light on these commentaries. <laughs> Now then, this man is raised from the dead, and so fear gripped them all. This had never been done before, and so they were terribly frightened by what they had seen. 
And this is one of those remarkable signs that the Messiah is amongst them. And they began glorifying God. They weren't Presbyterian. It's saying a great prophet has arisen amongst us and God has visited his people. See this tremendous thing? And this report concerning him went out over all Judea and all the surrounding districts. Now then I want us to skip down from verse 18, the account about John the Baptist, to verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Uh, before, I, before we follow on, hold your finger right there at verse 36. Let me say that if you have a harmony of the Gospels, one of those books that puts a chronological account and has them side by side, that once after Jesus has preached a magnificent sermon, he utters a gracious invitation in which he says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now right after Jesus said those words, this, this incident takes place. That woman who is going to come into Simon the Pharisee's house must have heard the voice of Jesus. And no other voice that she ever heard touched her heart so much as the voice of Jesus. No other eyes that she had ever seen gave her so much hope. And so when Jesus walks away, she is interested in following him. For deep down in her heart, there were feelings that had been crushed by the tempter, which the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is ready to set in tune again and to restore once more. And so she knows there, hope, there is hope. And if you are here this day under the burden of guilt, guilt which has been unresolved, sin which has not been forgiven and which you cannot believe can be forgiven, then you're just exactly the person that Jesus is here looking for. His voice is calling to you. And just as it went to this woman, who follows him and behold there was a woman in the city who was a sinner that's a very polite way to put it you ought to see it in the Greek uh, <laughs> behold there was a woman in the city who was a sinner she was a very coarse prostitute and when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisees house she brought an alabaster vial of perfume and standing behind him at his feet weeping she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Which of them, therefore, will love him more? 
Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she hath wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but since the time I came in, she hath not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And those who were reclining at table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith hath saved you, go in peace. Now then, Jesus performs this greatest of all miracles. You see the dead man that he raised is a greater miracle in healing, but that dead man would die again, that was brought back to life would die again. Now Jesus is going to resurrect a soul from the dead, a soul that will never, never die. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to see the miracle of salvation wrought in this poor woman's life. And for this reason, I call it the greatest miracle in the Bible. It's the greatest miracle because it is the one that we need the most. Dr. Bill Wilson, who will be speaking here tonight, who is a very gifted healer and a person whose knowledge of psychiatry and medicine has been the means of released to many people because coupled with that is also his great faith in Jesus Christ. We have discussed this business of forgiveness, for unresolved guilt is one of the chief causes of unhappiness and turmoil of soul. How many people there are who come to see ministers or psychiatrists or doctors who are living under a burden of unresolved guilt, who cannot really know that in Christ there is a forgiveness of sins that washes their sins all away completely. They haven't known that, sometimes because they haven't heard it, sometimes because it seems so hard to believe. But this miracle is needed the most because when we have unresolved guilt and hostility, it's like a barrier that separates a husband from a wife or a parent from a child, or a friend from a friend. And so the Lord Jesus is concerned with tearing down this barrier which guilt has erected. And he is going to tear down this barrier here. And he is interested in this woman who has heard his voice and who has come there. She comes and stoops down at his feet. She had heard that great sermon which he had given in which he said, come unto me. And she obeyed and she came. Now let me say this about predestination. The Bible says, come unto me. The Bible says, whosoever will may come. And the Bible also says, you hath he chosen before the foundation of the earth. 
Now, this is a great mystery to us. But I knew an old Bible teacher once who used to say, the Bible says whosoever will may come. I am a whomsoever, and I will, and I came to Jesus. And then when I got on the other side of the door, I saw you hath he chosen before the foundation of the earth. Now, that's good. Now, here is one who has heard the voice of Jesus, and she has responded. She knows that there is hope. She comes to Simon the Pharisee's house, a big courtyard where a large number of people have assembled for a big dinner, a banquet. I expect that Simon the Pharisee was one of those celebrity gatherers who in a moment of cordial warmth and goodwill had seen Jesus and had heard his voice and so he came up and said, look, I'm having a dinner over at my house and I'd, I'd like for you to come and join. And then when Jesus came there, maybe something had happened that soured. For he omitted all of the courtesies of having a servant meet him and wash his feet. He did not greet him when he came to the door. Now, if you or I had been invited to Simon the Pharisee's party and he had treated us in such an uncivil manner, we would have sat in a corner pouting or we would have taken our coat and hat and gone home. But Jesus was accustomed to people treating him this way. He knew what had happened. You know how people glibly extend invitations and then when you knock on their door and they open it and see you there, they can scarcely conceal the fact that they don't want you. Well, this is what happened here. And Jesus had been invited, so he accepted the invitation and he went there. He went there and once he was inside, Simon the Pharisee omitted all the courtesies. And then horror of horror, this woman of the street, this prostitute whose shadow he would have spat upon, comes into Simon the Pharisee's house. He was embarrassed to tears. He was humiliated. He turned away in utter disgust that the likes of her should have invaded his house. She was a great problem and embarrassment to him. But she was no problem and no embarrassment at all to the Lord Jesus. She went straight to him. And when she stooped down at Jesus' feet, she reached out. Can you imagine what it would be to reach out and to touch the foot of Jesus? She reached out and touched his precious foot. And when her flesh touched his flesh, she burst into tears and the big hot tears rolled down her cheeks and fell upon his feet. And in her confusion, she reached up and caught the tresses of her hair and began to wipe away the tears from his feet and more tears came and more tears came. And she took the little alabaster vial of perfume and trembling she broke it and she put it on Jesus' feet. And she wept. Simon the Pharisee thought this was such a wretched, inordinate display of emotion that he was horrified. And he began to make all of these speeches within himself, about himself, and about Jesus. St. Augustine, in his commentary on this passage, said that Jesus heard him thinking. Jesus knows everything you're thinking right now. Everything you're thinking. Jesus can hear you thinking. 
Jesus heard Simon the Pharisee's speeches that he hadn't uttered out loud. He could hear it all. He knew what he was saying. This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, who is a master of the mind, knows that it's always best to get something out. You know, I had a friend and told my wrath, and my wrath did end. I had a foe and hid my wrath, and my wrath did grow. Well, Simon the Pharisee couldn't hide his hostility from Jesus, so Jesus punches the little bubble of hostility. And he said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, well, go ahead and say it, Master. So Jesus tells his beautiful story, which I wish we had time to exegete carefully. He tells about a man who owes 500 denarii and one who owes only 50. Now remember this, there's no shortage of sin here. They were both in debt. Simon the Pharisee was a sinner, but he just didn't recognize and deal with his sin. Now this was a most unusual money lender. Those of us who have had to borrow money have never met a money lender who forgave everybody. This money lender, when they had nothing to pay, frankly forgave them. The word frankly is not a good translation, even in the delivered translation here, the New American Standard. Uh, it, uh, he graciously, he very generously and very graciously forgave them both. They didn't have anything to pay. Instead of sending them to prison or harassing them to collect the debts, he, he lets them go scot-free. That's what real forgiveness is like. It means that you let the other person go scot-free. You swallow your own just wrath against that person. And you don't conjure it up again. But you let them go. Bill Wilson says that forgiveness must always have in it acceptance. Acceptance, acceptance, acceptance. Remember that. That you forgive and you accept. He frankly forgave them. Now then, this little story that he tells, he says to Simon, do you see this woman? Simon didn't see her. He was blinded by his own pride. Her sins were open to everyone to see. They knew her as the scarlet woman, the streetwalker. Everyone in Capernaum talked about her sins. But Simon the Pharisee's sins you couldn't see out in public. Like so many of us, he had a carefully polished veneer that everyone else sees and praises. But inside there was a lot of rottenness. And Simon the Pharisee's friends didn't always see that. And so Jesus exposes him. He said, do you see this woman? And he said he did, but he didn't. And then Jesus, in some very stiff and inflammatory language, begins to say to him, When I entered your house, you gave me no kiss. But this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased kissing my feet, my head with oil. Thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with, with perfume. And then Jesus tells him, Her sins, which are many, now this is important, sins, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. 
God can forgive sins. He cannot forgive excuses. Remember that. God cannot forgive excuses, but he forgives sins. The woman was a sinner, and it was evident, and she is forgiven here. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. This demonstration of faith and love in the Lord Jesus had done it. And he said to her, go in peace. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Now let me say in conclusion, I wish that there were some other ending to this. Here are the two bookkeepers. Infinite wisdom keeps the books on us all. But infinite love audits those books. And here the infinite love of God extended in the Lord Jesus is seeking not only to reach this sinful woman, but this Pharisee as well, to reach him. I wish that Simon the Pharisee had caught the point of the story. I wish that he had said, Oh, Master, I see it, I see it, I see it. I've been so blind. I've had all this pride that shielded me from giving my heart to you. And then if he had turned to this woman and said, please, please get up. I'm so glad that you came in here today. If you hadn't come, I never would have known my own sins of pride, my own sins of omission. I know the terrible life you lived. I've got money. I've got influence. I can help you break out of this trap. I'm so glad that you came. You see, pride is the chief of all the sins that blocks us from the Lord. Forgiveness is the greatest miracle in the Bible because it is the miracle that we need the most. It's the one that costs the most. If you don't believe that it costs the most, all you have to do is read those remarkable words from 1 Peter 18 and, chapter 1, 18 and 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile ways of life, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Jesus. But Simon the Pharisee was like that passage in the book of Revelation. In 317, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. He cancels our debt. The miracle that costs the most. The miracle that does the most good because when we forgive, when we accept the forgiveness miracle, then we forgive those who have sinned against us. When the colony of Georgia was being settled by General Oglethorpe, there was a tiny little man by the name of John Wesley who was barely five feet five inches in height and who weighed only about 120 pounds. He came over here to America to preach to the people down in the Savannah, Savannah, Georgia area, to the settlers that were there. On one occasion, he went to the pompous General Oglethorpe and asked a pardon for a man. And Oglethorpe said, I never forgive. And John Wesley said, then, sir, I hope you never sin. And it was a well taken point. 
we, we must forgive. And the Lord gives us the grace of forgiveness. And that's why it's the hardest one to believe. And it's the miracle that you can give to other people. Let me conclude with one little story. Uh, we have a wonderful singer here from Texas, Bill Mann, whom I just love. And he would have known Roy Angel, who used to be in the Baptist Church in San Antonio, Texas. And Roy Angel one tells this story. Let me, let me read you just part of it, and then I'm finished. A businessman of San Antonio, one of the greatest Christians I ever came across, came to my home sometime after Christmas, and I opened the door at night, and I said, what brings you out this time of the evening? He said, I've got to tell you something that's made this the most wonderful Christmas of my whole life. He got comfortable in the chair before the fire, and he told me this story. He said, about four weeks ago, my brother gave me a Packard automobile for Christmas. One evening, I came down from my office and out to the car, and I saw a little street urchin who was standing there touching it with a finger and looking in at the window. And when I put my key in the door, he came around on my side. He was ragged and dirty and barefooted. He squinted up at me and he said, is this your car, mister? I smiled at him and I said, it sure is, son. Isn't it a beauty? He said, Mr., how much did it cost? When I told him I didn't know, he looked up at me, and he looked down, and he said, Why, Mr., you don't look like the kind of man that'd steal a car. <laughs> he said, Where'd you get it? Well, with a bit of pride, I told him that my brother gave it to me for a Christmas present. You mean, he said, that you got a brother that gave it to you, and it didn't cost you nothing? I said, That's right. My brother gave it to me, and it didn't cost me nothing. He rubbed his toe against the sidewalk for a minute like he was lost in thought. And then he said, I wished, well, I knew what he was going to wish. He was going to wish that he had a brother like that, and I had an answer already for him. But he didn't say what I thought he was going to say. And what he did come up with jarred me to my heels. He said, I wished. I could be a brother like that. I said, what'd you say? He repeated, I wish that I could be a brother like that. Well, it confused me so that I couldn't find an answer, and so I blurted out, would you like to ride in a car? He, he looked at, the, at his clothes, and he said, I'm awful dirty, and it's pretty and clean, and I wouldn't want to muss it up. I said, you might be dirty on the outside, but you sure are clean inside, and I think you'd do my car good. You just get right in. Well, he wanted to know everything about the panel board, and I sat there and explained it to him. We hadn't gone far when he turned his eyes toward me all aglow, and he said, hey, mister, would you mind driving this car up in front of my house? I smiled as I squeezed the big car into a half alley, a half street. I thought I knew what he wanted to do. He wanted to come riding up home in that big car and show his neighbors the car, but I had him dead wrong again. He pointed ahead and he said, you stop right there where those two steps are. He started to get out of the car and he said, you stay here, I'll just be a minute. And he ran up the steps and then in a little while I heard him coming back. But he wasn't coming as fast. He was coming down the steps like he was carrying a load. He was putting his best foot down, then the other one. And on the steps that came down on the inside, I saw his feet first. And then I saw two more feet that were withered and dangling. 
He was carrying his little brother and polio was written all over him. The well boy set his brother down on the bottom step and then he sat down by him and he sort of squeezed up on him and loved him. And he said, there she is, buddy. Just like I told you upstairs. And you know what? His brother gave it to him. It didn't cost him a cent. I climbed out of the car and I went over and sat down by both of them. And I said, is that the reason that you wanted to be a brother like that? Yes, he said. You see, I go into town and I see all the stores full of pretty things and I try to remember them and tell him about them when I get home. But someday I'm going to get him a car just like that. I'm going to take him down there so he can see him himself. I said, you're not going to have to wait. I'm going to put both of you in the car and I'll let you see him today. And you can pick out anything you want for Christmas and it's yours on me. I put a Christmas tree up in their house. I gave them the things they wanted and I had the grandest Christmas that I ever had in my life and I learned what Jesus meant when he said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Now my friend, the greatest gift that you can give is forgiveness. The greatest thing that could happen from having listened to this would be if you accept the forgiveness of Christ for the sins which you have committed. Just believe him. Just believe that song that Bill Mann sung a moment ago, let not conscience make you linger nor a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to know your need of him. Now, if you know your need of him and you'll accept that forgiveness this morning, then that will cause you to be able to transmit that forgiveness to your husband or to your wife, to your son or to your daughter, to your mother or to your dad, or to some person who has done you some evil or wrong. You know, down at uh, Creek here, I have a garden, a very pretty garden with a lot of roses and things. And I have people all the time giving me this little poem. It actually didn't even good poetry. It says, the kiss of the sun for pardon, the song of the birds for mirth, you're nearer God's heart in the garden than any place else on earth. Well, that might be a little jingle, but it sure is sorry theology. You, you, there, there is uh, one garden that you're nearer God's heart, and that's the garden of Gethsemane. That's the garden where you say, not my will, but thy will be done. That's the garden where you say like Jesus from the cross, Father, forgive them. And whenever you can swallow your own wrath and let the other person go scot-free, just as though something never even happened, and accept them again, that's the garden that you'll be nearest God's heart in. Let us pray. Oh God, our Father, the theme has been so big and the preacher is so little that we need the greater ministry of the Holy Spirit to help us realize how precious these truths are. Help us to know that we don't need to find our freedom half as much as we need to find our master. Help us to find him this day and in finding him know the forgiveness that he brings for all our sins. That they are all washed away. Our sins not in part but the whole that they are nailed to his cross and we bear them no more. And we can say praise the Lord it is well with my soul. 
And then because we have been the recipients of that forgiveness, help us to pass it on. In Jesus' name, amen.